You're listening to Beyond the Chart, where we go off the record with Baton Rouge General's medical elite. I'm your host, Brogan Taj. Let's get charting. Welcome to a special edition of Beyond the Chart. What you're about to hear is a panel discussion originally intended for Baton Rouge General employees about weighing the risk of COVID-19 and the COVID vaccine. Our expert panel includes critical care physicians, Dr. Stephen Briere and Dr. Ryan Richard, head of obstetrics and gynecology, Dr. Candy Moore, chief of staff, Dr. Lewis Minsky, and our director of pharmacy, Dr. Anisha Ford. Enjoy. All right, good morning. It's 10 a.m., so we're gonna go ahead and get started. I, uh, I wanna thank everybody uh, who joined the call today. Uh, to talk about, you know, weighing the risk of, of COVID-19 versus getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, I'm Stephen Mumford, your moderator and your chief operating officer. And we have six really good uh, panelists that have joined us today that have had a lot of experience with both the virus and uh, have done a lot of research on the vaccine and are here to uh, offer up any information or knowledge um, that our staff, you know, might want to know about. Uh, before we get started, though, I, I do want to go around the room uh, with our panelists and quickly introduce them and uh, have them to say a little bit about themselves uh, before we get started. So I'll start first uh, with Dr. Steve Breer. Hey, Stephen Breer, LSU Pulmonary and Critical Care, the Section Chief for Pulmonary and Critical Care here at Baton Rouge General. Uh, been involved with the COVID pandemic since the start with uh, all my partners, uh, have managed more than 750 COVID ICU patients uh, in the past year and a half uh, with more than 5,000 patient encounters. And Dr. Briere has has joined me in the office and also Dr. Ryan Richard is in the office as well. So Dr. Richard. Yeah, Ryan Richard, I'm one of Dr. Briere's partners. I've been uh, here taking care of the COVID patients since last spring as well, and uh, kind of been in the thick of things since the beginning and uh, share the same experience as Dr. Breer. Thank you, Dr. Richard. Uh, Dr. Candace Moore is on. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Good morning. My name is Candy Moore. I'm the director of obstetrics and gynecology at the general. Um, I have had some experience as well with uh, COVID, though not nearly to the same extent as our ICU doctors, but we deal with it also more on the clinic side and then also on labor and delivery uh, to some extent as well. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Uh, our next panelist is Dr. Lewis Minsky. Good morning. Uh, I am the current chief of staff. I'm a practicing family physician. And while I haven't been in the ICU with Dr. Breer and his staff, I have watched what they do, I have been uh, participating on the mayor's task force uh, during the uh, past year and a half of the pandemic. And uh, we have all together uh, continued to study and to uh, keep abreast of the situation as it changes and uh, the decisions and uh, what to advise or what to uh, not advise so much to uh, keep our employees safe, to keep our patients safe, uh, and to make every effort to mitigate the long-term consequences that COVID has had on us. Thank you for having me join today. 
Thanks, Dr. Minsky. Uh, next is Dr. Raji Vatsavan. Dr. Raji, are, are you on mute or he may not join us yet? Okay, we'll circle back to him. Um, and finally, uh, Renisha Ford. Good morning. I am Renisha Ford. I'm the Director of Pharmacy um, for Baton Rouge General. I have the honor of working side by side with our um, team of clinical pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, also partnering with BRGP, um, our um, physician partners within the health system, working to ensure that we have the medications available to treat our COVID patients, along with helping to stand up our COVID vaccine clinics across the health system, um, partnering with community organizations as well, and also being appointed to the Mayor's Vaccine Health Equity Task Force. So I'm happy to join you all today. Thank you, Renisha. Um, before we jump into the to the Q and A portion of this, I, I want to kind of establish what the goal is uh, of this Q and A. The, the goal is really uh, for these panelists to be advocates of information uh, for our frontline staff and for our leaders in the organization. Uh, the purpose is not to try to sway anybody or push anybody to do or not do anything. Uh, it's simply to answer any questions or concerns that you may have. So I have a pretty good handful of questions that employees have already emailed uh, to our corporate communications team that I'm going to ask the panelists. But at any point during the next hour, if anyone has a question that comes to mind that they want answered, just type it into the chat and uh, we will get one of our panelists to answer it. And also, if you have a specific panelist that you would like to answer your question, you can type in Dr. Moore, this question's for you, and we can make sure that, that Dr. Moore answers that question. So with that, uh, we'll get started. Uh, the first question is going to go uh, to Dr. Breer. Um, Dr. Breer, we know that that you and your group are very into clinical research, uh, and you follow the studies and everything that goes on as it pertains to COVID and the vaccine. So we are now over a year into the vaccine trials. So what would you say that we have learned, and what would you say we still don't know? Sure. So uh, what we've learned is that the vaccine is safe. Number one, you have worldwide more than four billion, that's with a B, billion doses of the vaccine which have been administered worldwide. People are all often concerned about we don't have enough data on this. Every one of these patients is actually reporting any adverse events, and the adverse events are very, very low. Uh, and so we have excellent data that the vaccine is safe. The second thing we know is that the vaccine is effective. It's effective in decreasing your chance of getting the infection. And right now with Delta variant, it looks like it might be somewhere around 85% or so. With all variants, you're talking about 90% effective. And we also know if you do get uh, infected with COVID, if you're vaccinated, that your clinical course will be milder than someone who's not vaccinated. So what we know is that a widely distributed drug with more than 4 billion doses is safe, protects you, keeps you from getting sick. Thank you, Dr. Breer. 
the next question is uh, for Dr. Candy Moore. Dr. Moore, can you hear me? I can. So lots of people have, including our employees, have concerns about potential fertility issues coming from the vaccine. Is that true? And what about uh, miscarriages and birth defects? Okay, so speaking to the first part, uh, the answer to that is no, that's not true. And there actually have been, uh, there's one study in particular that's been done that looked at that. Um, I think there was some concern that perhaps uh, the spike protein was similar to a, a different type of, um, it worked on the same receptor and it could potentially impact fertility. Um, but if that was the case, then in theory, even just having COVID should, should cause problems with fertility. But they didn't, they didn't show that. You know, there was a, a group of reproductive endocrinologists who looked at, you know, implantation afterwards, and it wasn't, it wasn't shown. So the answer to that's no. Um, as far as the second part of your question, you said, does it increase the risk of miscarriage? Is that right? That's correct. And birth defects. Yeah. And so the answer to that is also no. And so, so that's been looked at as well. Um, there did, they didn't show any increased risk of birth defects for people who were vaccinated versus not vaccinated. Uh, they also didn't show any increased risk of miscarriage. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Uh, the next question that we have is for Dr. Richard. Uh, Dr. Richard, what type of long-term side effects uh, should I be worried about in terms of getting the vaccine? Well, that's a difficult thing to, to answer because you know, the vaccine has not been out very long. So the, seeing long-term side effects is not something that we're seeing right now. We know that mRNA vaccines and, and this technology has been out for quite some time. Uh, this is not something that, that came up within the last few years, but it's been 10 to 15 to 20 years even. And they've been identified as safe and not something that we're really worrying about long-term complications from. So when people ask me that, uh, I try to assure them that it's not something that I worry about uh, and, and I don't think it's something they should worry about. So historically, we haven't seen a lot of long-term side effects from mRNA vaccine, correct what you're saying. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next question is for Renisha Ford. Renisha, could I have an allergic reaction from the vaccine? And if so, how common is that? You, you could have an allergic reaction from the vaccine. Most times we find that um, you, if you're going to have an allergic reaction, we'll see it within 15 to 30 minutes of the vaccine being administered to you. And that's why we have the observation period of 30 minutes after receiving the vaccine. Have we seen any uh, severe reactions in our employees being vaccinated on our campuses? We've only had about three instances wherein we needed to send one of our employees to the emergency room after receiving the vaccine and neither none of those individuals were hospitalized um, they were observed for a period of a few hours and then they were sent home and they were fine um, we don't encourage individuals who have anaphylactic reactions to other vaccines we cost them um, in in receiving the vaccine but outside of that any allergic reactions are very short term and we haven't seen any side effects or to those reactions subsequently. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, Dr. Minsky, how do we know how long the vaccine provides protection and what about against the Delta variant? Thank you, Stephen. 
as of right now, there is a feeling that the vaccine that we have all started receiving in the middle of December, and many of us in January of this past year, uh, when we were vaccinated, that we continue to have very good immunity. It is holding, uh, as Dr. Briere said earlier, an 85% efficacy, even with the current strain. So we know there are breakthrough cases. That happens with any vaccine. It happens with influenza at about 15 to 20%. Uh, and the same thing is happening currently. Uh, there's a lot of confusion with antibody studies because we're not sure exactly what those antibodies are measuring and how that actually correlates to one's ability to fight the virus if it enters the body. Uh, so currently, looking at the clinical cases we have, those people that come to the emergency room, to our offices, or to the hospital, it appears that the vaccine is working as it should. The majority of patients who are presenting are unvaccinated, uh, and there's ongoing studies. I think this is one of the reasons there's not been a recommendation for a booster outside of those who are immunocompromised. Those individuals generally do not mount an adequate immune response to any vaccine. And so there's enough data finally to say, hey, this group of individuals, these patients need to get a booster now. Uh, I know the Biden administration came out yesterday saying it's eight months. We need to give everyone else boosters. I think we'll take our time with this. I think that we're going to look at this data, and I think we'll make that decision appropriately. I would anticipate, although it's purely my opinion, that this fall we would likely see more patients getting uh, a booster shot. Will it be the same or will it be a different vaccine that perhaps will cover the next variants better? I think that's the data that we need to answer. But for now, we need to hold tight. Uh, we need to be confident that our vaccines are working and we need to wear our masks because that is an added level for this very contagious Delta variant um, to keep the transmission rates low, particularly to those who are not vaccinated. Thank you, Dr. Minsky. We do we do have a question uh, from one of our participants. Uh, Serena Blackwell is asking, how long does it take after the vaccine is administered for any benefits to be seen? And are there any benefits after the first dose? And I'll circle back to Dr. Breer uh, to answer that question. Yeah, not a lot of data on this uh, to inform completely. Uh, you are partially protected. We, we even have some internal data which looks at where are your antibody levels after one dose and then a second dose based on whether you were previously infected or not infected with coronavirus. And certainly the antibody levels are low after a single dose and they increase about three to fourfold after your second dose. Uh, what is the ideal level of a protective antibody? You, you, you don't really know. So what, what I would say is more importantly, given what's happening in our society today in our community, if you're just deciding to get vaccinated today, I would still proceed with more caution uh, and, and assume you're unvaccinated until a couple of weeks after your second dose. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, the next question is, is for Dr. Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore, a lot of parents are getting the vaccine, but are hesitant to get their children the vaccine. Can the vaccine impact development or future fertility in children? 
So the answer to that again is, is no. And it's the same, the same, um, I guess, relevant information as what was for the first one. I mean, I get it. I have a 14 year old daughter. I, I was the first round that got my COVID vaccine. So I was you know, there in December. I was there for my second dose in, in January. And my 14 year old daughter just got her first dose two weeks ago. So I get the reservation. I understand, you know, that it's one thing to do something for yourself and it's another thing, you know, to take a risk for your child. But I, you know, ultimately made that decision that I wanted her to have that protection. And, you know, obviously this is something that's not going away. Um, it was a decision we made together as a family. So I understand where people were coming from, but ultimately um, now that we're seeing it affecting more and more and more younger people, um, I think that people should be reassured that there's not been shown to be an impact in fertility for children. Um, so, you know, that's not a reason, in my opinion, to, to not give it to your child. Thank you. Now, the next question uh, from our staff is for Dr. Richard. So, Dr. Richard, what, what type of risk am I looking at if I don't get vaccinated in terms of hospitalization and death? And has that changed since the beginning of the pandemic with the Delta variant? Yeah, so let me just say this anecdotal uh, side that, you know, we are we are seeing a lot of patients that came in here that never thought that they would be sick. Uh, very few of them are vaccinated. The ones that are vaccinated, the breakthroughs tend to be older and have some of the similar problems we, we mentioned earlier, like being immunocompromised, where they're unable to mount a response to the vaccine. Um, people that we initially saw in the first really year of this were people that to some degree we could predict they had they were older they had multiple comorbidities uh you know we've all heard these things uh obesity hypertension diabetes inflammatory processes such as that delta stone is a major curveball so we are seeing people now that we never thought would have been sick uh we're seeing people get sick more quickly uh and what I can say is that the number of people that have come in that we're seeing with COVID versus the number of people that we've seen total, which for me is zero, and I don't know if Dr. Breer can, can comment on this, but I've seen zero complications reach the ICU from a vaccine. So to me, that, that speaks volumes. So um, the unvaccinated population, it, it's coming in really quickly. It's really burned through our community. It's, 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 talk, it's hard to watch this. I know it's somewhat difficult to track, but have you all in critical care seen many patients who are unvaccinated but were infected with COVID-19 in 2020 before the, before the Delta variant yeah, hit? We, we are seeing that. So, so, so it's somewhat safe to say that, that having COVID last year and being unvaccinated does not necessarily uh, supply you with the necessary defense against so the natural immunity question is one of the biggest questions that I get from people and a lot of people in my family ask this question people that have had COVID and a lot of the, the information that people have access to on the internet and on the news is that the, the natural immunity uh, is as good some people say even better than the vaccine but we just don't have any research to prove that what I can tell you like I said anecdotally is we, we are seeing far more people who had COVID come in with a reinfection of COVID especially with this Delta variant versus people who were vaccinated now, that could be a time thing because the vaccine's been out since the spring and how long it sure. shows you immunity. I don't know, but that's what we're seeing. Anything to add, Dr. Brandon? No, I, I would agree with that. And I, I would just, uh, I would add to it only that that I had COVID. I had symptomatic COVID. <laughs> when, when the vaccine became available, 
I went and got my vaccination. I don't know about Dr. Richard. Yeah, well, he, he actually, I did. Yeah, I, I had pretty severely symptomatic COVID, and I got the vaccine as soon as I was able to. So, without any hesitation. All right. Well, thank you, um, Renisha. Can you answer the question? Are there any people who shouldn't get the vaccine? So there's no specific group that should not receive the vaccine. Just once again, we caution those who have anaphylactic reactions to other vaccines. But other than that, no, we encourage and we want everyone to become vaccinated. Are there any uh, medical exemptions uh, that would exist currently? Not to my knowledge. Thank you. Dr. Minsky, um, a lot of people have, that have gotten vaccinated so they wouldn't have to wear a mask anymore, but now it's recommended that everybody wear a mask again and still mandated um, in the state of Louisiana and obviously the four walls of all the health systems. How long do you think this will last given our current vaccination rates? It's hard to tell because of the number of variables that are factoring into our current surge. We are still very, very busy. We still, I think yesterday had 34 new cases that presented to the emergency department. That's up about 11 from the average the rest of the week. So we're still seeing that upward number. Our children are going back to school uh, this morning. I know that a dyslexic school closed. They've only been open since uh, last Thursday. Uh, they closed because of COVID. The 16 to, I'm sorry, the six-year-old to 15-year-old age group is already spiking this past week as school has gone back. And so these are unvaccinated because 12 and older are the only ones able to get vaccinated. And then there's a low vaccination rate. So we still have very vulnerable parts of our population that are able to spread this very contagious virus. Uh, COVID has become as COVID as chickenpox. Chickenpox and measles were the most contagious two viruses on the planet uh, before this Delta variant of COVID. And so I think that the ability to decrease the spread and prevent infection and reinfection by wearing masks is a plausible and simple ask uh, that we can all do to reduce the current surge and get us through this this next wave. We uh, we cannot afford young people who are um, entering our emergency room and being placed in our ICU uh, at the rates at which it's occurring. We still need to protect our older at-risk individuals, whether they're vaccinated or not. Uh, again, for the simple fact that we want to reduce the spread, even if they may have only a minor case it's important that we reduce that spread. And so if we're doing this across the board, uh, if we're avoiding large crowds, if we're trying to uh, protect ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities, masking right now is simple. We'll, we know it's gonna be through the end of the month. Uh, I would expect that we would see it into September given the current numbers. And uh, until we have more individuals who are vaccinated, not just who have been sick or vaccinated, but until we have a population that has exceeded 70, 75, 80% vaccination, 
we're going to have at least periods of time where masks are going to have to be worn. Thanks, Dr. Minsky. Dr. Breer, you heard Dr. Minsky say it's not uh, it's not an unreasonable request to ask people to mask, mask and vaccine. Yet we know how polarizing uh, the vaccine discussion has been over the past year. Why do you think it's been such a polarizing topic for people? I know you talk to a lot of people kind of small groups and one-on-ones. What, what are you hearing? So I, I think it's polarizing because uh, there's a little bit of fear regarding coronavirus by, by part of the population. And, and in another part of the population, they look at coronavirus as nothing more than a cold. Uh, to, to be honest, both, both sides are actually right. It, 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 it's basically a cold. And, and the overwhelming majority of people are going to do fine when they get coronavirus. The problem is we can't predict that person who's going to do bad. And it could be one of your family members. It could be your parent. It could be a sibling. It could be a child. We, we don't know. And because we don't know, the only effective strategy to preventing people from getting very ill is to vaccinate. But you have to balance this fear with this disregard. And so you have two different segments of the population, right? Well, then that gives against the virus. And so it's got nothing to do with your DNA. It's mRNA. And these are different things. You know, and you read about these anecdotal cases of people who are developing blood clots as a result of the vaccine. Well, let's look at people with coronavirus. People who develop coronavirus have an incidence of blood clots, severe blood clots, that can vary between two and 10%, depending on which study you look at. That's two to 10% of people will develop a blood clot with coronavirus. We've seen that in some of our hospitalized days. Absolutely. We, we look at this frequently to explain certain things, okay? That was due to coronavirus in an unvaccinated patient. Six people who got the vaccine from J&J had blood clots. This was not a shock. This is about the person. Those that is that person's own response to the antigens of the virus, which will lead them as an individual to develop blood clots. But if you get one from the vaccine and you don't have the virus, you're a hell of a lot easier to treat than if you have the virus and you develop a blood clot at the same time. The same is true for the story of myocarditis. The same is true for any of the headaches that occur. Any of those symptoms that occur, these are merely your immune reaction, and you're a hell of a lot better with any of those events not being infected than being infected and getting those, those events. And, and so, 
you hear about these events and everybody talks about, oh, it's the vaccine, it's the vaccine, it's the vaccine. No, it's the individual. And, and, and they're probably lucky that they got the vaccine because that's a much better way to have any one of those events occur. They would have occurred if they got coronavirus. But it's just misinformation. What's going on? So, so on the blood clot topic, you said 2 and 10%. So between 2 and 10 people out of 100 that have COVID-19 will get a blood clot. A blood clot that requires therapy. If we just screen patients, I think the number is closer to 20%. And so do we know do we know how many J and J vaccines have been given so we can say what six people would be percentage wise? Oh, this is way, way lower. I've done the numbers. Renisha, you might have them. J and J is the lowest of, of, of all the vaccines. But but this this went along with what the background diagnosis of DVT and PE would be in a general population who had no intervention. Right. I think it was like 1% of the total number of doses of Johnson & Johnson provided, which is much less than even an individual who smokes or who takes um, birth control obtaining a clot. Thank you, Renisha. We, we do have a question uh, from Trey Nelson for Dr. Minsky. Uh, Dr. Minsky, based on what we saw last year and have already seen this semester, do you believe we will continue uh, to see schools shut down um, in the parish throughout this fall semester? Again, uh, there are several different factors that are going to make this decision for us. I do believe that we have learned a great deal of information since last year. Uh, unfortunately, the young individuals are who are, are most affected right now. Uh, schools, we find offer different opinions, they uh, use different contact tracing, they do, they use different rules for dismissal of classes and parts of classes. And so it's really all over the board because I don't see a set standard uh, by which schools can follow. Uh, so as we get into this school year and the, the current uh, surge continues, we will likely to see some classes dismissed. We're already seeing it. We will see uh, some missed opportunities for our kids to go back to school. Ultimately, we need to get them masked and we need to get them back to school. That's their best way of truly being a contact or a non-contact. And, and again, that's all over the board. I don't think there's any good data that says do it this way. The schools are cleaning the classrooms as best they can. Uh, they've spread children out as far as they can spread children out. We need to continue to encourage our 12 and older age groups to be vaccinated to help with that part and segment of the school-aged uh, children and young adults. And uh, our kids need to get back to school. They need to learn and have those opportunities in, in person. Again, pushing our adult population to get vaccinated helps to serve protecting them, the parents, and helping to transmit the uh, rate at which this is spread. So we're all in this together, and, and we all—all all of these factors have to be um, taken into consideration. We're likely going to see school closures intermittently. We're still going to see classes, parts of classes that are going to be dismissed, but hopefully. We can mitigate that 
if enough of our schools, our school districts, and our private schools will take heed to medical advice, get vaccinated, wear your mask. Thanks, Dr. Minsky. And, and we did have a, a comment from uh, Vegan that of the six uh, blood clots in the J&J &J vaccines, that's out of 21.4 million for those that are not looking in the chat. So the, the percentage uh, of a blood clot chance based on the data we have is, is much smaller than your percentage chance of a blood clot, obviously, if you contract uh, COVID-19. Uh, we have another question uh, from Katie Kansian. Uh, this one's for Renisha. What is the current recommendation on the waiting period to get the vaccine after being infected with COVID? The waiting period is once you no longer are showing any signs and symptoms of COVID um, and you're no longer contagious. Thank you, Renisha. We have a question in the chat. Uh, yeah, just one. One comment regarding that. So people that came in and got Regenerons, the monoclonal antibody, usually we recommend them waiting 90 days after if you came in and got an infusion for, for whatever reason, whether it be in the ER, the outpatient setting, or in the ICU. But if you didn't have Regeneron and you're fully recovered, you're good. You can, you're good. Yeah. Well, well, one word of caution regarding the uh, vaccinations in the previously infected, it will induce symptoms similar to what you had when you were infected. They should only last about 12 hours with an onset sometime around four hours after you take the vaccination. So if you had COVID, which was pretty significant, moderate in its severity, and you're getting vaccinated, don't plan anything for that 12-hour interval after you get vaccinated. It will be self-limited. It will go away. You can treat the symptoms with standard over-the-counter stuff, uh, but but that will occur, and it's expected. That's just your body's immune reaction that says you're forming the stuff you're supposed to form. Thanks, Dr. Breer. We have another question for you from Regina Gang, and I think we would all like to know the answer to this question. Are we at the peak of this fourth wave, and do we think we'll see another variant come through? like Lambda? Uh, so uh, I think we're very close to the peak. Uh, we're probably past the peak of number of infections. There's lots of epidemiology that, that looks at this. Uh, Dr. Richard and I just looked at some stuff this past weekend from LSU uh, regarding this. It, it looks like our RT value, which is the infectivity rate that is occurring is below one. That means that for every person infected, less than one person will be infected by that person. So that means you're coming over the top uh, of the curve. It, it's been that way, I think, for about six days. But most people aren't hospitalized till about day 10 after they become infected. So as far as us as a hospital, we still have a few days to go before we reach the peak, but as far as the community in general, we're now beginning to see a little decline. That doesn't mean that we should stop wearing our masks or anything like that, as Dr. Minsky has alluded to multiple times. There's still a susceptible population out there. 
and the the R naught value that you speak of with you know the rate at which one infected person affects other people, are those projections? Do they have anything to do, or is there any calculation for schools going back in in those projections? No, there's not. Uh, and, and that is a little bit of a concern by many people uh, when they look at this. But if we looked at the entire population, it, it's estimated that 50% of the population has been infected. Now, we've got, you know, a little bit north of 40% of the population vaccinated. There's an overlap between those two, but we're getting really, really close to only 20, 25% of our population is susceptible. The second part of your question was, uh, will there be another variant or not? I, I, I got to be honest. I didn't think we'd be here today. I, I, I thought we were close to done. I thought we would have vaccinated enough people by this time that we've been uh, approaching herd immunity. And I never thought we'd have a surge like this. So I'm, I'm not going to let my guard down. Yeah, I think we will have another variant. We have another question in the chat, and I'll give this one up to Richard. If the vaccine doesn't prevent the virus from circulating because the vaccinated are still able to spread it only, not only to unvaccinated, but also to other vaccinated individuals, will this cause the virus to become endemic, just like the cold and flu viruses? Well, I think that's that's what people are starting to project. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of to build on what Dr. Breer said is, is you know, number one, is there going to be another strain that's going to cause uh, this level of, 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 of a wave that, that affects the healthcare system to this degree. We don't know the answer to that. I agree with Dr. Briere. Uh, I didn't expect this to come, but at some point when enough people have gotten this vaccine and, and, and the, the overall, I don't want to use the word herd immunity, but when, when the, the immunity of each individual in the population is built up so that this doesn't become something that leads you to be hospitalized, and it simply becomes what we commonly think of with normal coronaviruses, then I think it'll be something that's more endemic. And I, I do think that that's on the horizon. I'd like to just add to that, you know, it, it is possible. I, I could be vaccinated. Someone could cough on me. I could have some of the virus. I could potentially transmit it. But how long I would be able to transmit it will be lower if I'm vaccinated. And the likelihood that I could transmit it will be lower if I'm vaccinated. The fact that the vaccine doesn't work 100% of the time, I don't find a great reason, that to be a great reason, not to be vaccinated. Amiodarone doesn't work 100% of the time to prevent atrial fibrillation. Any blood thinner doesn't work 100% of the time to prevent a recurrent blood clot. When you look at efficacy of medications, and Regina can comment to this, most of the time we're happy if there's a 25% difference between a placebo and a drug that we give. And we have a vaccine that is 85 to 95% effective. That's good. That's about as good as it gets for any therapy for anything out there. Do we do we have any idea of, of the percentage decrease in you if you're vaccinated, like you said, and contracting the virus and spreading it? How much of a how much less of a percentage uh, chance is that be relative to the spread? The, the, so one thing that we get a lot of is, is we get a lot of data that that proceeds from other countries, right? Because Delta came from other countries and, and then came here. And when you look at that data, like 
You get a lot of data out of Israel. And you and I had this discussion the other day. If you are looking at data from Israel to inform the rest of us in America, it's a flawed analysis because the genes are different in Israel than they are here in America. And this is all about an individual's genetic response to the virus. And so they don't extrapolate very well. Got it. So our own studies are probably our best studies. They are our best studies, and we don't have significant data in that regard. We, we have another question. Um, there's a lot of misinformation in the media. Ivermectin has been in social media as a treatment for COVID. Is this something that we are actively using to treat patients, or is this only being tested in clinical trials right now? Also, can you talk about the current clinical trial that BRG is participating in? Uh, the nasal spray, and if it's still open to join. Um, I, I will let Dr. Minsky uh, take the first question about ivermectin and are we using that in our current treatment protocols? And we can answer that for ambulatory and the hospital. I think ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine probably can be discussed in the same conversation. Um, trust the physicians. If there were adequate data both for efficacy and safety, that ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or any other medication would benefit and help us to reduce the rampage that we are witnessing today, we would be all over it. Having said that, there are some physicians who are prescribing one or both of these. Um, Last year, I think we gave almost 4,200 doses of hydroxychloroquine during the second surge during the summer in inpatient and saw little or no value in those efforts. Um, there is a lot of desire by the public to have a short answer. Instead of giving, uh, instead of going to be vaccinated, just give me ivermectin or give me hydroxychloroquine so I don't get sick or help me get well, um, it, 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 uh, it's understandable how there's a social media presence for these medications. Look, two years from now, a year from now, we may have data and we may all be wrong about this, but as of now, there's no clear-cut evidence that either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine give sufficient uh, reduction of symptoms or prevention of hospitalizations and severe illness nor does it seem to sufficiently reduce the spread of coronavirus, uh, of this coronavirus. And so um, side effect potentials are there. Um, there are patients who take hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis and others. They're monitored. Um, but overall, there's just no good way uh, at this time of, of, of putting these drugs into full use uh, with the little help that we've seen from the studies done thus far. Even the pharmaceutical company that makes ivermectin suggests that we not use it for COVID-19 treatment and prevention. And so, again, I would ask us to all put <laughs> on our, our thinking caps and be patient and, and think about what the right answer is here uh, and to let go of some of the, uh, the conversations that we hear, the anecdotal friend that developed COVID and took ivermectin and the next day they were well. Wasn't necessarily the ivermectin that did that. There are a lot of patients who contract COVID. 
they feel bad a day or two and then they're well. We don't know that these patients would not have gotten well otherwise. And so it makes it challenging. It makes it challenging with so many things going on with the COVID pandemic, but um, nothing yet that has made solid medical progress to prescribe these medications. Thank you, Dr. Minsky. Uh, the next question is for Dr. Moore. Dr. Moore, we've heard rumors that getting the vaccine could possibly make it worse if you get a different strain of, of COVID-19 later. Um, is there any truth to that? Um, speaking from personal experience, I would say no. I'm not, I, as I mentioned earlier, I had the vaccine and then I actually got COVID about a month ago. Um, I was very fortunate to be at home. I never had to be hospitalized. My symptoms were mild compared to, to most. Um, so, you know, I clearly got a different strain than what I was, quote unquote, vaccinated for. I'm still very thankful for my vaccine. So I would say that the answer to that question is, is no. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Um, I'll, I'll go back to Dr. Briere for this question from Annette. Um, it seems that our current focus is on masks and vaccines. What else are we doing to educate our employees, patient families, and community on how to take care of themselves at home or how to boost their immune systems to possibly prevent hospital admission? And the other, other thing I'll add to that is we've, there was a question here about vitamins as well. And it's that sure. there's a lot of talk about vitamins and, and boosting immunity against COVID. So if you could. Uh, sure. So, uh, so beyond social distancing and vaccination, which are easily our, our two most effective ways to prevent spread of this, uh, certain supplements uh, and then prophylaxis uh, against the virus uh, are, are discussed. Um, it, it always strikes me, I'm going to want to take a pill that I haven't proven to prevent me from getting the virus every day, or I could just take a shot and be done with it. But uh, if you're looking for evidence, the only thing you really have is that people who are vitamin D deficient have a slightly increased risk of COVID or coronavirus-mediated symptoms, right? Uh, but, but again, that's just statistics. But, but because the majority of people are vitamin D deficient. And so the majority of people are vitamin D deficient and you put a virus that's very prevalent into your community, then you'll always be able to show a statistical association between the two. It's just math it is all it is. So there's nothing that's proven to prevent you from getting coronavirus except for this thing called a vaccine. And it works 85 to 95 percent of the time. Dr. Richard, I, I know uh, you've been in the COVID ICU pretty much since the, the pandemic started. There's a lot of rumors out there that, that are saying that hospitals are not truthful about how many COVID patients they actually have and, and how COVID deaths are reported. Um, are they really deaths from COVID or did they happen to have COVID and they died of something else? Can you, just from your experience, can you elaborate on uh, whether or not those, those, uh, those comments are even credible or not? Well, I think this is, you know, a product of fear, and which leads to desperation. And you, you combine that with social media, uh, and then you have a virus that is uh, caused a lot of social 
you know, anchoring, whether it be from political views or religious views, and 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 now we're we're seeing exactly that. So what we have in the ICU uh, is, is somewhere along the, the number of fifty something COVID ICU patients right now. We, we've been higher than that. We've been much lower than that. We've we've kind of gone in waves. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of any patient that we had that had COVID uh, that died from, you know, being in our ICU at, with COVID as the driver of them being in the ICU that, that we call something else. And I, I, not that I can recall. Uh, and I certainly, there is no, at least on my end, there is no extra hospital payback to call it COVID. We're not getting paid more for taking care of COVID patients. We're working a whole lot more, which I'd rather not be doing. Um, the the idea that I've also read that there's some tie-in with big pharma, which drugs we're looking to push, and that's another thing that you see pushed along. We're not using ivermectin, we're not using vitamins because we're we're tied in with big pharma. Well, big pharma to me is telling somebody to prone in bed, giving them steroids that have been around for a while, and oxygen. Uh, you know, so a lot of these things are just these are just things that are trickling in, and and they catch fire in this crazy environment that we're in. Um, uh, to, to sort of go back to the question that you asked me is the COVID patients have COVID. They're in there and they're sick because of COVID. They have COVID viral pneumonia, ARDS, uh, and then the abundance of other crazy things that it can cause blood clots, heart attacks, strokes, uh, clots that cause amputations. Uh, the virus itself leads to so much inflammation that you have denuding of the epithelial system. You get pneumonias, bacterial pneumonias superimposed on that. So say somebody catches a pneumococcal pneumonia on top of their COVID and they die. To me, that person died from COVID. They wouldn't have had the pneumococcal pneumonia if not for the fact that COVID ravaged their lungs. So there, there is no uh, reason for us to, to screw that into another direction. It's, we're, we're trying to be as honest as we can and, and we want people to be vaccinated so they're not in there with COVID and these other things I don't think are gonna happen. So maybe some of the misconception is that that person died of a pulmonary embolus, but it was because it was secondary to COVID-19. Correct. And so having COVID was really why they got the embolus, which is why they ended up dying. But if someone sees that it, it wasn't necessarily just COVID, then they're saying, well, that's not a COVID death. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely. And, and it's not, it's, it's not, it's pulmonary embolism. It's, it's heart attack. Uh, less myocarditis than I see this actually coming. We've seen, we've seen hearts that don't work as well in the process of COVID. But the number one domino, the domino that fell, that started the whole cascade was COVID. Sure. Um, and just real quickly, so you mentioned big pharma. Can, can we talk about that for a second? Because there's a whole lot of information out there about uh, this is a big pharma initiative and, and the reason why uh, hospitals are not using ivermectin and, and drugs like that is because they're past their patent and there's no, there's no quote unquote money to be made off of those drugs. And that there's a lot of money to be made off the vaccine. Can you comment a little, a little bit about that? The the tools in your arsenal, because I know one of the drugs we're using a lot of is very inexpensive, and that's that's steroids. So could you talk a little bit about that and and you know your feelings on this whole big pharma discussion that keeps going on? Sure. Well, first off, and I'm going to go off this a little bit and just talk about philosophically what I feel about COVID. I feel the degree of fear. And what the fear has built into the whole world right now has caused us to do things that aren't always pragmatic and, and we, we lose common sense a little bit. So I go back and we've talked a lot about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. Uh, and, and so let's take that. It's, it's a flu. It's an influenza virus that happened over 100 years ago. And 100 years later, with modern medicine, 
we still have, and I'm going to throw Tamiflu under the bus here, zero drugs that work against influenza. So the idea that in a year to a year and a half, you're going to find a cure for a novel coronavirus that is highly mutagenic, that that, that changes and can do all these things is to me it's it's being a little naive and a little arrogant with what we really are. Um, what we do know is that it causes a certain cascade of symptoms. Most commonly what reaches us is people that have such low oxygen levels that they need incredible amounts of supportive care to support them through it. Um, it's a disease of inflammation to us. So we try to give them anti-inflammatories to, to, to temper that. And, and we, we tried different variants of things. We've used things that are as expensive as Actimra to things that are as inexpensive as steroids, which have been around forever. In my personal opinion, nothing works better than steroids. Uh, so we're getting no kickback from that. This is, these are just the things we've tried. Early on in the process, we were using a lot of Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine. And when we use that, we also we also use a lot of azithromycin. We saw a lot of refractory cardiac arrhythmias, people that required us to have them on esmolol drips in order to make their heart rate reasonable. And the second we realized that those drugs weren't working well, we stopped them. Those arrhythmias went away. I don't know if you want to jump in on that. Yeah, that that is, and that's an important analogy to ivermectin, yeah. right? Because we all had a theory about why hydroxychloroquine might potentially work or azithromycin might work. And there were interesting theories. And, and, and we had this virus which was ravaging us in, in, in the first two waves. And so we gave it in the absence of clinical trials and we were wrong for giving it. I, it if I could go back in time and change something, I wouldn't give those drugs. Uh, if I could go back in time, I would give steroids as anti-inflammatories, but we were told not to give steroids at, at the start of this. That's the purpose of science, to get smarter. We're better today than we were then, and, and I agree with Dr. Richard. The best drug we have for, for moderate to severe COVID-mediated disease is a steroid, and a steroid is about the cheapest damn medicine you can get anywhere. There's plenty of to go around. We have no shortage of that. So thank you guys for answering. We, we have about five minutes uh, left of our time. So what I'd like to do in closing is just ask each one of our panelists um, to just take 30 seconds or so and uh, let our employee, if there's anything that we, you think we missed or if there's any one thing you'd want our employees to know uh, before we end, um, we'll just start there and, and I'll start uh, with Dr. Minsky. Thanks, Stephen, and thanks again for asking uh, me to take part in this. Thank all of you who joined. And I would say uh, that if you've been vaccinated, congratulations. If you had COVID and survived, congratulations. Uh, if uh, you're still wondering whether vaccination is right for you or not, I would ask that you simply put aside for just a few minutes all the information that you've garnered through Facebook, uh, social media, YouTube, Fox, CNN, or any other area where all of this information is flooded in. And take a moment to listen to the facts and, and the reality of what's happening, whether it's from the panel of physicians and pharmacists today, or whether it's from your own personal physician. Take heed, think about what really 
is going to be in your best interest and make a well-informed decision for yourself and your family. Uh, and let's get through this together. Thank you for all what you do on the front line and as part of our hospital system. Thank you, Dr. Minsky, and, and thank you for, for joining the, the group today. Dr. Moore. Thank you. Um, I would like to take my time to speak to the obstetric population because I think we really didn't speak really much to them. And I know we have employees who are pregnant and certainly people who maybe have wives that are pregnant or, or daughters or whoever. Um, but, you know, our vaccination rates are, are low, generally speaking. But when you look at the pregnant population, only 23% as of last week of pregnant people in the United States are actually vaccinated. And that's a really low number. Um, so I really want to speak to that and just, you know, we know that with COVID and pregnancy, that there's an increased risk of severe illness, an increased risk of ICU admission, respiratory failure, increased risk of death even. And we also know that this vaccine is safe for pregnant people. So I would encourage you, please speak to your doctor if you have concerns. We have growing and growing mm -hmm. evidence, you know, that supports the safety of that. And we also know that there's an increased risk of preterm birth. So, you know, it affects more than just the mom. Um, so please speak to your doctor about that. Um, let's, you know, work to keep those patients safe as well. Thank you, Dr. Moore. We appreciate you joining us today. Now, Renisha Ford. Thank you. So the first thing that I would say is that we understand the hesitancy. We understand um, the uncertainty and waiting. However, particularly as healthcare professionals, we all make a commitment to do no harm. And in doing no harm, we have to realize that vaccination is a selfless act. It's not just about ourselves, it's about others. It's about protecting our patients. It's about protecting our family members and our friends, um, our children and ourselves. And so to take that into consideration, and when we were putting on the vaccine clinics, um, one of the things that I would share with a community member who might be hesitant was that it's okay to ask questions, ask plenty of questions, be cautiously educated in making your decision. And that, that is okay to ask questions so that you can know, so that you understand, so that you can feel comfortable in the decision that you're making. But I think what the Delta variant and this latest surge has shown all of us, especially those of us who are um, younger in age, is that we're all fair game to COVID. It does not see demographics. And so with that being said, I just would again encourage everyone to become vaccinated. And if you're vaccinated, to continue to encourage those close to you to become vaccinated as well and continue with your social distancing and wearing your mask so that we all can come through this together. Thank you. Thank you for joining, Renisha, and thank you for your insight. Uh, Dr. Breer. Uh, again, thank you all for letting me be a part of all this. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions even after this forum's over. I, I think Renisha brought up a fantastic point. Uh, vaccination is not just about yourself. It's about everyone you come in contact with. And I don't know which one of those people I come in contact with 
will have severe coronavirus-mediated disease. I'll just put it in the numbers for today. This morning at 7 o'clock, we had 64 ICU patients in this hospital. 52 of those were COVID-related ICU hospitalizations. 90% of those people were not vaccinated. That means there's more than 40 people in our ICUs this morning at seven o'clock that didn't have to be there. Well put, Dr. Breer. Thank you for your time uh, and for all your feedback. And last but not, re not last but not least, Dr. Richard. Yeah, I, I'd say, guys, just thank you for having uh, myself, Dr. Breer, and everybody. Thank you for being here. I've learned a lot listening to everybody talk. Uh, I would say do your absolute best to tune out all the white noise that surrounds you. I think that's been one of the biggest problems right now. And try to try to talk to people that you trust a lot that are around you that, that have your best interests in mind. Um, uh, I promise you that Dr. Breer, myself, and everybody here just wants to not see you guys in the ICU and to, to not see your family members or anybody else that you know. And our, our best option for that right now is clearly the vaccine. And like I said earlier, you know, that they're the, the people that have concerns about the safety of the vaccine. Uh, we're not we have not identified those things in our ICUs yet. And going back to the 85 percent of effectiveness of, of the vaccine as far as getting the virus, it's much higher than that. Uh, with what I think matters is, is keeping you from being in an ICU or in a hospital. So it's, it's higher than 85 percent. So. Um, Please, please consider. Thank you, Dr. Richard. And again, I want to thank all the panelists uh, for taking some time out of their day to answer the questions and also all of our employees uh, and our leaders who got on today. Uh, thank you for trusting the, the, the feedback and the knowledge that these panelists bring to the table after over a year and a half of, of dealing with COVID-19. I want to thank you all again, and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.